First Samuel chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 And the word of Samuel came to all Israel Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle And pitched beside Ebenezer And the Philistines pitched in Athak And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel And when they joined battle Israel was smitten before the Philistines And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? The camera leaves Samuel and Shiloh and goes now about 20 miles to the west to a place called Athak. And there the camera remains until the end of verse 11. And then after verse 11, the camera goes back again with a Benjamite to Shiloh. So the chapter has a twofold division. It's very clear. Verses 1 to 11 form the first part of the chapter. The defeat at Aphek. And then the Second part of the chapter, verses 12 to the end, the report of that defeat back at Shiloh. So verses 1 to 11, then the camera at Aphek, and that's where we are tonight. But before the camera goes to Aphek, it gives us a quick final glimpse of Samuel, the new prophet in Israel. How does the chapter start? And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. It's there for a purpose. It is showing Samuel as having a message that goes to all Israel. Now the first sentence of this chapter is unusual. Because after this there's no mention of Samuel. Until chapter 7. He drops out of the scene and out of the story. Telling us that he has nothing to do with the defeat. He has nothing to do with this episode. Of the ark of God being stolen away by the Philistines. The defeat is not due to him. And so this isn't implying that. They're going out against the Philistines and they're doing this now according to the word of God. That's not what's implied in that first sentence. Now there are some people who think that it belongs to the end of chapter 3. It should rightly go there and we should be starting chapter 4 with now Israel went out. But I don't think that's the case. The Lord is telling us something here. He's telling us he's a prophet to all Israel but he's not yet a judge. Eli is the judge Eli is the one taking the responsibilities for the warfare and what's going on here. He is the one who has God's word. And it's implied. Israel doesn't want that word. Israel's not inquiring about the word. Israel's not depending on the word. Israel's depending on the elders who are in the camp. Israel's depending on the Ark of the Covenant which they bring into the camp. Israel's depending on the priests, Hophni and Phinehas. But this word, this word which is available to all Israel, that does not seem to be their interest at all. 
It's not what they're looking for, though it is what they need. So Samuel is out of the picture then. Whenever we are just being reminded, he has the answer. But Israel doesn't want the answer. And it doesn't seek for the answer until chapter 7. Whenever Samuel becomes the judge and the prophet and leads them to victory over the Philistines. So what we have here in chapter 4 is a people struggling and battling without the word of God which is available to them which they won't give heed unto. We are seeing in chapter 4 that the people are blind. That they are moving in the warfare in the darkness. So when they send for the Ark of the Covenant, they're groping in the darkness. They have no word. They're following superstition. They're following their notions. They're leaning on the temple and on the corrupt priests. So that's what I think here we have. We're getting a picture here of the word available to all Israel, but they don't want it. They're not yet ready for it. And they won't be ready for it for a while until chapter 7. So there are people here then that are making wrong decisions in very critical times because they are not heeding God's word. Only when they heed God's word can they be assured of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant doesn't bring to them God's presence and victory. Because they're not heeding God's word. It's his word that's being resisted. So the very first thing in our lives then, congregation, if we want the presence of God, is to have his word and to heed it and believe it and receive it. And so I think that first sentence really explains the end of the chapter. What does it say there? The glory is departed from Israel. It's written over them all. Ichabod, the glory is gone. The glory is departed. And why is that? Well, because of the neglect of this word that is available to all Israel. That's why. That's the reason. And so that's why it's included here at the start. To show us a striking contrast. They could have had the light but they chose the darkness. Unfortunately, that's the history of so much of the church. So many churches have rejected the word. They've turned from the word. Or they've neglected the word and they've brought in other things, other things that will bring God's presence, other things that will bring God's power and God's blessing. And all the while, the word that is available to them is stuck in the corner, rejected. Certainly unheeded. And that's a sign of apostasy. Whenever churches are shoving the word aside. And less and less of the word. And and more and more of the tradition. Or more and more of the the cultic worship symbols. Or more and more of the, the clergy. Or the priest or whatever. And the word that is available to all the church. Doesn't it say it came to all Israel. All Israel. The word that's available to all the church is neglected. That's the road to Ichabod. That's the road to apostasy. That's the road to the glory of God going and leaving. So let us always be a church that holds fast the word that God has given to us. Let us cherish it. Let us keep it central. Let us believe it. 
Let us obey it. That is so important. And that's why the problems occur in Israel here. Because Israel's not heeding the word. The next thing that I draw your attention to is something else is coming to all Israel. The word was coming to all Israel, but they obviously didn't want it. So now something else is coming. The Philistines. Because we're told there Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And so what is coming now is a danger. Is a threat from the enemy. The Philistines are commencing an invasion. The Philistines are on the move. And they're coming to, to all Israel. And Israel is, is responding by going over to meet the challenge in the west as the Philistines move up from the, from the west coast up into the hill country. They go over to meet the threat at Afak. So they're clearly commencing a campaign in Israel. They want to take over Israel slightly more to the east. And in actual fact, they accomplish that. They do capture Shiloh. Shiloh is dealt with and removed in the judgment of God, which we know according to the writings of the prophets, though it's not described here in Samuel in detail. But they do take over Shiloh. Now, the Philistines here, this is their first mention in Samuel, but it's not their first mention in the Bible. They're not a new foe. We saw them whenever we study the life of Samson. Samson's kind of nearly contemporary with this time. He had as many exploits against them, but he hasn't really weakened them that much because they've strengthened themselves and they're able to come up on this occasion. They are uh, people who have settled in the coast of Israel, having traveled from the island of Crete. They are in the coast a long, long time. In fact, they were there whenever Israel was in Egypt. Whenever God brought them out of Egypt, he didn't bring them through the Philistine land because of the the warrior people that they were. He brought them through the wilderness. And they had been established even long before that wilderness journey. So they are well established. They are a strong military force. They have military experience. They have all the technology. They have all the metal work for for the weapons. They have the chariots and the planes. They are skilled in maneuvering their troops. And they are the uncircumcised Gentile idolaters that are coming up to destroy Israel and its tabernacle. They represent the seed of the serpent. That's what the Bible is. It's it's a whole history of the seed of the woman on the one side and those who belong to him. And those on the other side, the seed of the serpent, those who belong to him. The battle between light and darkness. That's what the whole Bible is about. And here is this ancient foe coming again to Israel. Remember how Luther put it, for still our ancient foe does seek to work his woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. The old foe returns again to Israel. The old foe is never dealt with until the last day. There will always be the coming of the old foe. There will always be the confrontation. There will always be the conflict and the strife and the battle. That dragon, what is he called in the book of the Revelation? That old, that ancient serpent. And here's the ancient foe coming back again. Under the guise of the Philistines. 
So the darkness is coming. The darkness is encroaching the land of light. And gross darkness is about to envelope the people. And that word that was so much needed, that light of the word, is not being heeded. That's the very thing that needs to be heeded in the battle. And in the darkness. And in the attack of the enemy. What defense have we got against the enemy? Against the old foe? Against Satan and his seed? If we don't give heed to the light of the world. What did Peter say? We give heed unto, unto the word as a light in darkness. That shineth in the darkness. So the old foe's coming back again. We have to inquire about this movement of the enemy. In the darkness. Why are they camping at Afek? Why are they ready to launch their invasion now? What, what, what is happening? What's going on in the minds of the Philistines? More importantly, what is going on in the mind of him who has stirred them up, Satan? What's he thinking? That he, he brings them in at this critical moment in the history of Israel. We've seen the first three chapters, and now Satan is stirring up the enemy. He's stirring up the forces of darkness to quickly move in this situation into the land of Israel. Why now? Is it not because he sees an advantage? Is it not because he sees weakness? And now is a good time for an assault? You see, there is weakness in Israel. And Satan knows it. Because the apostasy is strong. It's got into the very heart of the tabernacle. Hophni and Phinehas. Blind Eli. Satan has already worked inside. He's already worked in Israel. He's weakened Israel from within. He got a foothold inside. He has Hophni and Phinehas on his side. They're like Judas characters. They're, they're abandoned to Satan. They've given themselves to the devil. And to wickedness. They've sold themselves out for wickedness. You remember how the, the prophet, he said there that there was no atonement for them. Verse 14, I've sworn unto the house of Eli, chapter 3, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. Horrific words. No covering. No atonement for Hophni and Phinehas. They're sold out to the devil. They're beyond hope. They're on their way to hell. And when they die... In verse 11, that's where they go to. They go to hell like Judas. They go to their place. Because Satan has entered into them. And the apostasy is strong. So Satan makes sure that they come into the camp of Ebenezer. Whenever the Ark of the Covenant comes. Satan makes sure they're along too. His tools, his instruments. And so Hophni and Phinehas, they accompany the Ark. And they come into the camp. Even the devil has a foothold in the camp of Ebenezer. He's worked inside. He has the traitors within. The church has been destroyed from within. And now he brings the Philistines from without for the final blow on the nation. You see, that's how the devil works. He works on both fronts. He works in the church and he works without the church. And he's working for the destruction through these mutual forces. For the destruction of the church. So that's what's happening here. There's heresies within. And there's heretics inside. 
And then there's the persecution outside, the, the political adversaries, the political forces, the, the power of the nation, the power of the government outside, encroaching itself upon the church. And the church continually battles on both of these fronts, within and without. And within we have modernism and compromise and liberal theology and turning away from the word of God and questioning the word of God and people coming in and even getting into pulpits, men getting into pulpits and getting into office and getting into the Bible colleges. People like Hoffman and Phineas who are ruining and destroying and bringing the judgment of God upon the congregations. He's worked within but then there's the liberalism without too. The opposition without the forces. And the devil's working both those ways today. Churches are apostatizing. Churches are leaving the word. Churches are becoming modernistic and contemporary and fitting in with the age, with the liberal age. And then the, the outside powers increasingly encroaching on the gospel and on the, the stand for righteousness and truth and we have to remember we battle on two fronts so the devil senses a good time now for the the death knell and so he sends in the Philistines for a quick end of Israel but on the other hand it's also true that Satan senses a danger he senses that he must move because something's happening in Israel. God's doing something. God's beginning something. God's beginning to work. He senses that. He's not ignorant of chapter 3. He's not ignorant that there's a child being raised up and made the answer to prayer. There's a child being hedged and protected, even from his Satan's Hophni and Phineas. That there's a child being raised up who's different. That there's a child who's had appearings of God and visitations from God. A child who now is coming into a man with the word of God, a mighty prophet of the Lord. And Satan is sensing the danger to his kingdom. So this is Satan's response to chapter 3. Even though the Philistines are ignorant of it, Satan's not ignorant of it. And so he knows that the light is arising in this child. That the word of God is beginning to revive. That the word of God is beginning to go out again. And that the Lord is beginning to visit his people again. And Satan realizes he must react quickly. And so the darkness rises up in response to the light. And that's how the devil works. Does it not say from Dan to Beersheba? All Israel knows. And the word of God came to. This is something new. All Israel. Israel's beginning to be united now. Before there was a judge here. And a judge over there. And a judge somewhere else. And some of these judges were ruling at the, at the same time. In different parts of the land. But now there's a judge rising up. Who has the ability to unite all Israel. North and south. Even from Dan to Beersheba. And for the first time since the days of Joshua. There seems to be the possibility of unity and harmony again amongst the nation. And the devil senses that. And now's the time to move in quick to prevent it. 
So he's responding to the light and to what is happening. The devil's not stupid. He's no fool. See, when that little baby Jesus was born, the devil knew. Whenever a star rose over Bethlehem, the devil knew. And he had to make sure his servant Herod knew too. And Herod acted fast under the devil's impulse. And he went out against Bethlehem to slay all the little boys in the hope of getting Jesus. That was a satanic attack. And now something like this has happened. A little child has been born. A little child is growing in the fear of God. A little child has the anointing. A little child has been called into the prophetic ministry. Like Jesus. And Satan has to act quick. So this is what spiritually is happening here. The devil is aware when his kingdom is threatened. You remember Legion. The kingdom of darkness on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. You remember how secure he thought his kingdom was and how secure he thought his legion was. No man could bind him. No man could stop him. But then a light arose over the Sea of Galilee and it was making its way over. And Satan knew. Satan knew because it was Satan sent that storm. And that storm just hit that boat. It didn't hit the whole lake. It just hit that boat. And Legion knew, even the man himself, knew the devil had risen up. Someone was coming. There was someone who was coming to liberate. And that poor man knew he had hope. That's why he ran down to the beach. Because he sensed here was someone who could redeem him. Here was someone who could deliver him out of the kingdom of Legion. So he ran down. But Legion, the devil, tried to stop Jesus. And that's what's happening here. There's a light rising. Get the Philistines in quick. To put it out. Aim for Shiloh. And they did. But Samuel wasn't there when they got. The Lord kept him and preserved him. So that's another reason why they're here. This then is a case of not only attacking the kingdom of light. It's a case of the devil having to defend his kingdom of darkness. By going on the offensive. So the story of the world is a story of light and darkness. In all this constant endless battle. It's a story of church building. With the Holy Spirit and the light of the word. And the story of the gates of hell continually trying to resist that and oppose that. And you have that here in miniature in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. So we learn from this portion then of scripture that in readiness for Satan's attack, the word of God to all Israel is the only hope. The word that God has given us to all the churches is our only hope. We have to hate it. We have to give it its proper place. We have to receive it. We have to obey it. So know that if there is a move of God among us, Satan will respond. If there's a breath of life comes among us, Satan will be sure to respond. If there's a new prophet or a new minister, Satan is sure to respond. And if unity is strengthened in a church and Harmony is good and watch out. 
Watch out. Because Satan will move. He will move. He will attack. And it might well come from without. As well as from within. And so we we rightly pray for visitors for the church. And for people to come. But brethren and sisters, we don't want the Philistines. We don't want the wolves in sheep's clothing. We don't want the devil's crowd. Because the devil, the devil can raise up a crowd too. We want to ban the people whose hearts God has touched. That's what we want. We're told that Israel goes out to battle. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle. They have no choice in this matter, of course. The Philistines are on the move. The invasion is imminent. And Israel has to go out to battle. And you notice it knows the enemy. And it knows where to go. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle. And pitched beside Ebenezer. Near to Aphek where the Philistines were. So Israel knows the enemy. It knows the location. It knows its purpose and aim to battle. Israel goes out to battle. It's doing the right thing. Going out to battle. But it's not doing it in the right way. And it's certainly doing it without the word of God. Which is so totally foolhardy. But they are going out to battle. That's their purpose and aim. You see the church has no alternative against Satan. And his forces. But to go out to battle. The church is not an army of compromise. It is not an army of surrendering to darkness. And surrendering to Satan. The church is an army of resistance against the kingdom of darkness. We have to battle. From the day that God said to the devil, I put enmity between thee and between the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, between that enmity between the two seeds, down to the very last day, God has ordained the warfare. God has ordained the battle. And the church must go out to battle for truth and righteousness under the command of God. So they're doing the right thing. God himself is a warrior. The Lord is a man of war, the Bible tells us. He wars for truth and righteousness. He wars the light against the darkness. And he must do so because he's a righteous and holy God. And in that warfare, the church of the redeemed has to be on God's side. Who is on the Lord's side? And so we have to battle with God. And the Lord's a warrior, for example, in Psalm 45. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand will teach thee terrible things. And thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Whereby the people fall on thee. So, so the Lord is a, is a champion for truth and uprightness. Didn't we see that in the book of the Revelation? Didn't so often this vision of the warrior king on his horse coming, fighting for truth and righteousness, his people behind him, his angels with him in the warfare. So we have to be on the Lord's side to go out to battle. To battle. You can underline it. That's what you have to do. You have to battle. To battle. The church of God on earth is a body militant. An army terrible with the banners of the gospel to battle. We are set for the defense of the gospel. 
We are to oppose and confront the heretics. We are to oppose and confront the devil's crowd. We are to oppose and confront the wicked and confront the evil governments and the evil laws and the wicked laws that they use in the furtherance of their domain. So coming out to war is necessary to battle. But how they go out to war is important. It is not the war. It is how it is fought that matters. And Israel is going to find that out. It's fighting it in the totally wrong way. Israel discovers that the enemy is too strong for them to fight in their own strength. What does it say there in verse 2? The Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. A defeat. Powerless. They weren't strong enough for the Philistines. Now we're not told what their numbers were. They probably had superior numbers. They certainly had superior military skill because they put themselves in array, that is, they put themselves in a military formation that was pretty much undefeatable and that Israel had no answer for. They were pious. The Philistines had the might. The Philistines have the skill. The Philistines have the technology. The Philistines have the weapons. Israel are just basically glorified farmers. They're no match for that. Gentile immigrants from Crete who invaded this land and have kept it for centuries, they know how to fight. They know how to invade. They know how to take the enemy. They are the ones that have the warring skills and all the rest, the chariots. Israel is primitive by comparison. Humanly speaking, they can't stand before them. And they don't either. And it's still true, brethren and sisters, we are no match for the world. We are no match for Satan. We are no match for ungodly human governments. We are no match for kings and magistrates who decree unrighteous laws and implement them too. We, we are no match for them. We are no match for their abilities, their gifts of eloquence and oratory, for their knowledge and law, and all these other areas. The church is no match. The church just studies the Bible and grounds itself in the languages of Scripture and prays and seeks God. If it comes to flesh and human ability, the church is, is on the weak side. And if it comes to violence and force, we're certainly on the weak side. In fact, now in the kingdom, Christ forbids us to use violence. That method is ruled out now altogether in our warfare, using the sword and violence. And, and even if we were allowed to use the sword, we'd be pretty useless at it. Because, you see, Christians don't like to kill. They don't want to kill. Not even their enemies. They don't want to kill and shoot people dead and send them to hell. It's not, it's not in them. We're, we're sheep. We're doves. We're not killers. And it's hard to train us as killers, too. It's not in us. 
We're not wolves, we're not eagles, we're not birds, we're not lions. We are sheep and we are doves. That's how the Bible portrays us and pictures us. The world uses the eagle as a symbol. USA, the fierce nation, the warrior nation, the bird of prey that can tear all others apart. And Russia, the great bird, the great bird that can go out and scatter and tear all the people apart. And rule by force and strength. That's not the church. We're poor and needy. We inherit the earth by meekness. And there's no such a thing as meekness in an army of this world. Because to the world, meekness is weakness. We're no match for Satan, for the liberal governments and rising persecuting powers. We're not. So Israel cannot depend on her own strength. Because she's outnumbered, she's outmaneuvered. She hasn't the technology, she hasn't the skill. She is utterly dependent on God. From whom alone is there sufficiency? And they're not going to get grace if they're rejecting his word. So it cannot fight without God's word. And whenever they analyze the battle in verse 3, after the defeat and 4,000 killed, they, they go back to the camp and the elders are, are doing the investigation, doing the inquiry and said, wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? That's a good question. Because that's an actual fact. What happened, the Lord smote them. Israel's undefeatable unless the Lord lets them be smitten. And the Lord smote them. They asked the question, right? They asked the question, well, unfortunately they didn't come up with the right answer. That was the problem. Now, they do in chapter 7 what is right. They look to Samuel at last. And he brings them a message of repentance. A message of offering the sacrifices. A message of prayer and obedience. And then they go out. It's a different story then under Samuel. They look to Samuel, who's a type of Christ. And they listen to his word then in chapter 7. And it's another Ebenezer then. Now, not the same place, but the same name. This Ebenezer where they were defeated and humiliated. And now in the place of victory, they get the name back again in another place. Ebenezer, he truly has helped us. But only when they looked to Samuel. Only when they looked to the type of Christ. Only when they had the sacrifice. Only when they listened to the word of God. Put away their idols and all the rest. Only then did they get the victory. Whenever God's word came on board, whenever the man of God came on board, the story was different then. And brethren and sisters, the church cannot win. And it cannot resist the devil. And it cannot be more than conquerors and overcomers unless we look to Christ and to his word. Unless we listen to Christ and his word and take him on board and take his word on board and hold fast to Christ and to the word and so that's why Satan attacks the Bible that's why Satan brings in liberal theology that's why Satan attacks the person of Christ and the work of Christ and the doctrine of Christ to divorce Christ from his congregation so that they may be powerless and helpless and at all costs the church can never surrender the Bible and its faith in the Bible and its creed 
concerning its Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. At all costs we must maintain the doctrine of Christ and must look to him and hold fast to his word and obey him. That's how we fight the warfare. Not in darkness, not in the blindness, not in the superstition of we bring this in. You know, the church has had this for hundreds of years. We have this Ark of the Covenant. If we bring this in, it'll all be magically better. No, it won't. Not if you're not listening to the Bible. Tradition is parlous. It's the Bible that is mighty. We can't let it go, brethren and sisters. We must hold it fast to the very last breath. The faith of the word of God. Remember how Paul said to Timothy, I charge you, Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them might war a good warfare. You can't war without the prophecies. You can't war without the word. By them, by those prophecies that went over you in the power of those wars. Fight the good fight, he said. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And no man that warreth entangleth himself with the furs of this life, but that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a good soldier. How do you do that? How do you please him who's chosen you to be a good soldier? There's only one way. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith. That's the only way. But faith needs something. Faith needs the word of God. It's faith in the word of God. That's how we war a good warfare. And how we strive manfully. I fought a good fight, Paul said, at the end of his life. Because it was a fight of complete dependence and adherence upon and to the word of God. You see, we have to have the word of God brethren and sisters, because our, our warfare is not fleshly. We don't battle against flesh and blood. Yeah, we know that liberal governments are flesh and blood magistrates and kings and parliamentarians and all of that, but, you know, there's, there's powers behind these people. Our wars against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, and that's why God gives us the armor. We're still in the flesh here, confronting and battling. But we do not war after the flesh. It's a big difference, you see. I mean, we're still human nature. We have to you know, confront the devil and resist the devil in our humanity. But we don't war a fleshly warfare. We can't. We have to believe the Bible and trust in God. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So you see why that first sentence there then is at the start of chapter 4? Just to let us know that Israel has rejected the only weapon whereby they could defeat the Philistines. And when they get back to that weapon, it's a different story.